When we think of how we communicate on a personal level, we don't naturally think of it in terms of ethics and responsibility. But there is an ethical component to our relationships that is important to acknowledge and discuss. This is especially true when it comes to conversations that happen in groups or that impact large numbers of people. Like they do in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, schools, houses of worship, and government. Our question this episode: What can ethics teach us about effective communication? Welcome to episode thirty-seven of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo, and thank you so much for joining me. My guest today is Yonsen Goldson, who will give us some insights on how ethics can inform how we communicate with others, and what our experiences in professional settings can tell us about how to have better conversations about sticky topics such as politics. When we're in more personal settings, immediately after our conversation, I'm going to turn to a listener question from Jessica, who wants to know how to communicate better with her fast-moving boss. Remember, as you listen to that segment, that you too can submit your interpersonal communication question for inclusion in a future episode. All you have to do is go to howcanisaythis.com/slash/submitquestion, and you will find complete information there. And stick with me after my response to Jessica, when I'll close the episode with a final thought on my conversation with Yonason and offer you your call to action. You know something that I love even more than puppies, dahlias, dark chocolate, and naps? Learning what you think of this show through your ratings, reviews, and feedback. You can connect with me at Beth at HowCanIsayThis.com if you have direct feedback for me, and you'll find information on how to leave a review or rating on your platform of choice on the website at HowCanIsayThis.com. And saying I'd love to hear from you more than I love puppies is saying a lot. I just met a little nine-week-old puppy named Rue yesterday, and she was complete cuteness overload. I thought my heart would burst, and I will feel the same way if you take a couple of minutes to offer your feedback. Thank you so much for considering it. And now let's get on with the conversation. Yonason Goldson is director of Ethical Imperatives LLC, teaching professionals how good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity. He's a keynote speaker, TEDx presenter, and community rabbi, as well as a recovered hitchhiker and circumnavigator, former newspaper columnist, and retired high school teacher in St. Louis. He's the author of hundreds of articles applying ancient wisdom to modern culture, and has published five books. Most recently, "Fix Your Broken Windows," a twelve-step program for promoting ethical affluence. Hi, Yonason. Welcome to How Can I Say This? I am delighted to have you here on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Beth. Good to be with you. Well, you know, one of the things that I find really interesting about your work is that you write about ethics, communication, politics, and society. And often, you're writing about the intersection of those topics. I want to pull out the ethical principles and communication principles, and I'm curious what can we learn from basic ethical principles about how to communicate effectively. With one another. Well, you you hear the you just use the phrase effective communication.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear the phrase 
clear communication. And, and I argue that if it's not effective and it's not clear, then it really isn't communication. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, let's say what one of my psychology professor in college called dialogues of the deaf, mm. when <laughs> people are talking at each other. And, and often it looks like one person's just going on and on until he has to stop to breathe. And the other person jumps in and says what he wants to say until he runs out of air. And then the other person jumps in and picks up where he left off with no acknowledgement of the other person. Yeah. It looks like a dialogue. It looks like a conversation, but there's no communication taking place. By the same token, if I'm using language, if I'm presuming assumptions uh, or reference points that you're not familiar with, that you don't understand, then I think I'm being perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. And, and then I blame you for not understanding me. Because as far as I'm concerned, you should have gotten what I'm saying. Right. But it's my responsibility as the speaker to make sure that my message is coming across, that I'm articulating my point of view in a way that you can understand it, even if you haven't already bought in. Mm -hmm. And that's the ethical component. Ethics is always the awareness of how our behavior affects those around us. So, for instance, a, a neighbor of mine who is an Israeli, he was staying with some people he didn't know very well in America, and they served him dinner, and then he finished his plate, and they said, do you like another serving? And he said, no, thank you, I'm fed up. <laughs> yeah. To him, he'd heard this phrase, it made perfect sense, right. and he couldn't understand why his host got a little chilly after that. I can't understand how they could not have understood <laughs> exactly <laughs> the mistake. <laughs> um, but sometimes we're, we're so ready to misinterpret. We're so ready to assume the worst from other people that we simply jump on what we think they've said without making the effort of actually understanding what they're trying to communicate. That is such a great point. Just, you know, this uh, bias towards misinterpretation um, or, and I think of that especially happening on social media. (laughs) And I've been guilty of that myself where somebody will write something and if it's, you know, one of these uh, too long didn't read kinds of posts and I see trigger words, right? Um, I gloss over the meaning or the intent of the post and focus on those triggers. And if I'm not careful, I will immediately respond with something that makes it clear that I didn't actually read and understand what that person said because I was I had this bias or this filter that only saw those things that said, well, that's not right. Or, oh, that person totally agrees with me. How cool. You know, so I think the bias can go both ways. Sure. And we're so pressed for time now. We feel so pressed for time that we feel we can't really make the investment in reading an entire article or sometimes an entire paragraph. (laughs) Uh, I I got an email once from somebody who had read an article of mine and they just lit into me. Mm -hmm. So I I sent back a very polite letter saying, thank you for your comments. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, these are your points. And here's what I said. And it was actually very nice and refreshing. The person sent a very apologetic uh, email back Mm -hmm. saying, I read the first line and I thought I knew where you were going and what you were going to say. And and, uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to to really understand your message. Uh, So that was the ethical response on his part. He made a mistake. It was an honest mistake if avoidable. And, uh, and he took responsibility for it. And, uh, you know, we were able to part company and, uh, you know, cordially instead of mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, antagonistically. Yeah. So the, the ethics part of it goes both ways, right? It goes to the person doing the communicating as well as the person doing the listening. And so it's uh, dependent on both people kind of following those principles. Yeah. And if I see that, that you've made a mistake in 
interpreting me, then I take responsibility to re-clarify, mm-hmm. to try and hear where your mistake happened mm-hmm. so that I can address that. And if we're both committed to making sure we understand each other and trying to try to find some common ground, some common point of understanding, then chances are we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Any other principles that apply to effective communication? Um, Listening is very much part of what we're talking about. Uh, I don't know who said this, but the the word silent and the word listen are made up of the same letters. (laughs) Yes. And again, when you listen to talk radio, cable news, what passes for debate in this country, uh, when's the last time you ever heard someone say, oh, that's an interesting point. I never thought of it that way. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gladiatorial combat. Yeah. And there can only be one winner. Also, if you've ever had the experience, I know I have, where you're arguing a point and in the middle of, of this impassioned debate, you suddenly realize that you're wrong. Oops. <laughs> so, you know, so what do we do? We double down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we fight even harder and we try to save face uh, and we just do more damage. So it's, it's having the integrity, the authenticity, the courage uh, to acknowledge when maybe, maybe I have made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, let me give the other person a chance. Mm-hmm. Let me make sure that I'm hearing their side of the argument. You know, a great example of this um, if you've read uh, or seen the, the TED Talks by Jonathan Haidt, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's just wonderful. He, he actually set about writing a book as, as a liberal Democrat. He wanted to debunk the right wing position politically. And, and he, he had the integrity of knowing that I have to articulate their position in order to refute it. Yes. And when he actually studied their position, he realized, you know, they've got a little bit more basis for their beliefs than I ever gave them credit for. Mm-hmm. And, and he's actually shifted his position. He, he still considers himself a, a Democrat, but but he's much more moderate now. Mm-hmm. And he really is a voice of that kind of moderation. One of the one of the few uh, that we need we need more of. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I think his book is. Um, I, I I don't know if he has more than one, but the, I think of the Righteous Mind, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll include a a link to that on the episode webpage so people can follow up with that on the the TED Talk. Because you're absolutely right, we we have lost the capacity sometimes to listen for nuance and to listen to be open to influence and to be open to being mistaken, wrong, or we might say, well, I understand, and I wasn't. Um, how should I say that? How should I say this? That I wasn't necessarily quote unquote wrong, but that my beliefs were not based on full or accurate information. And so I have a new level of understanding that shifts what I was believing before. I still understood why I believed what I did, and I don't think it was necessarily wrong, but I also can acknowledge that there's more than one right way of looking at this. Yeah, sometimes there can be two legitimate ways of looking at an issue Mm -hmm. that may each have a basis in truth, in fact, in logic, and in reason. And mutual respect allows us to sometimes recognize that we can agree to disagree. Yeah. And other times, no, when we have to try to really assert our point because we really feel that we are in the right one of the great evils in the world today, I believe, is groupthink, mm-hmm. that we we cluster with those with whom we agree, and our interactions just become reaffirmations yeah. of what we've already decided is the truth. And you can go through history, ancient and modern, and find countless cases where the unwillingness to allow an alternate point of view even to be presented, mm-hmm. much less considered has led to catastrophe. Yes. 
and this is what we do. We do it with our news. We do it with the, the algorithms on our on our computers that feed us our information, uh, and and we end up just uh, isolating ourselves in in echo chambers where we assume everybody who doesn't agree like us is is evil because everybody we spend time with thinks exactly the same way we do. So how mm-hmm. could there possibly be uh, a genuine, authentic, legitimate? Uh, alternative point of view. Yeah, yeah. And the more we open up ourselves to other points of view, that kicks in our probably our fight or flight response to some degree. (laughs) Uh, Uh It it threatens our identity. You know, that that fear of being wrong, you know, it, it sounds like it's easy to say, well, be okay with being wrong. But, you know, it does become part of your identity. And then that extends to your identity as part of the group. And if we see that under threat, then we probably are more likely to kind of double down and and isolate ourselves because we don't want to face that particular threat. Absolutely. This is very much the theme of the TED Talk I gave in, in Colorado Springs last month, where, uh, mm. you know, I, I said that if we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to hear and understand where other people are coming from, mm-hmm. certainly we don't know them, we don't understand them, but we don't know ourselves either. Yeah, because we don't we don't make the effort to dig down into our core beliefs and examine whether they're really worthy of belief. Mm-hmm. Very often we just absorb those beliefs, whether it's from our parents, or our teachers, or our peers, or the news media, and and we become so invested in them that we never consider the possibility that I might be wrong, and we never question how we even came to think this way in the first place. Yeah, and we can't be ethical if we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to see all possible sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. Well, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about how can we bridge the political divide, you know, such as what we've been just been talking about, um, especially in conversations that we're having at home and at work and in our communities. And you suggest that one of the ways that we can make progress with having more civil political conversations is to learn how we manage conflict and resolve differences in non-political conversations, um, particularly in the workplace. You know, we kind of want to go for the tough stuff, right? Like, let's just jump in the deep end and figure out how to untangle all our political woes when we could back up and start with something that's a little less charged, such as, you know, just typical interpersonal, especially um, in the workplace differences. What lessons can we apply from business conflict to political conflict? Uh, yeah, and and you know one thing we can all agree on is we want to make more money. We want to be more successful. Yes, <laughs> right. We we want our we want our businesses to thrive, and we want to feel that uh, we're working towards success. So um, I'll even pose to you as a question: What's the first recorded case in history? of advice for a CEO. Recorded? Yes, recorded. Oh, gosh. I don't even know if I can. <laughs> I'm guessing it's somehow back in hieroglyphics. Well, maybe even farther because okay. it's, in the, it's in the very beginning of the Bible. Uh-huh. When God says to his heavenly court, let us make man in our image. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean, let us? He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. he's the all-powerful, all-knowing being. So why is he consulting with underlings who clearly have no power? And, uh, and it's a lesson mm-hmm. for leaders throughout the generations mm-hmm. that even God <laughs> reached out to his court to ask their opinion. Uh-huh. 
And, yeah. and when a CEO, when a leader, when a boss, when any person in power includes his, his circle in his decision-making process, there are two points that are very important. First, when people feel they're included in the process, they feel invested. Mm-hmm. Even if their idea isn't taken up, they know they've been heard, they know they've been respected, they feel like they're part of the team. The other element is, if you're not God, and most of us aren't, um, <laughs> maybe somebody has an idea that's a good idea that you didn't think of. Yeah. Maybe there's a flaw in your reasoning. And really good leaders, uh, I talk about this a lot now because I'm reading the, the biography of Abraham Lincoln, and, and he brought all his political enemies into his cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And people were, I mean, everybody was upset with him, and people were telling him it's a bad idea. And he understood, one, the union was in a stage where it needed legitimacy, so he needed as broad a base as possible. But also, he was dealing with the greatest crisis in the history of the United States, Mm -hmm. and he needed every possible opinion to speak up in order to be able to form uh, an approach that gave the union a chance of survival. And... You know, there's nothing worse than than a boss, a CEO, who just wants to hire people who are going to tell him what he wants to hear. Right. Like we said, that's the group think. That's when you end up with the 2008 economic meltdown. That's when you end up with the Challenger space shuttle disaster. That's mm-hmm. when you end up with the, the Bay of Pigs invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. If people would have been, felt safe mm-hmm. in articulating their questions... And if someone would have listened and considered, well, let's take that up. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. But if we don't discuss it, how are we ever going to know? Yeah. And so in business, certainly we, we want to succeed. We want to be successful. Who knows whether some fellow on the you know, machine shop floor has seen something down there on the front lines that could uh, inform the CEO of a better way to run the company. There are examples this has happened. Mm-hmm. Well, and it and it seems like that transfers over into politics. And I think particularly of trying to get anything done on a community level is that you can't just have the people who think something needs to change in charge of doing it and making it happen. You have to be involving the people who are going to be changed, uh, you know, who are the recipients and the participants, actually, in that process. And so recognizing that it's uh, it takes a village in order to do that. And we're probably quicker to do it in the workplace. And we forget that principle when it comes to more politically charged issues, because we're focused on our differences as opposed to what's our common objective. Right. So if we could sort of train ourselves in the workplace mm-hmm. to think more this way, then the hope is that could spill over into other aspects of our lives. I mean, Simon Sinek makes fun of these these CEOs who say, my top priority is the customer. He says, you haven't seen a customer in 10 years. How do you even know? <laughs> mm-hmm. right? you, you need to have this, this two-way communication from all the bottom up and, and from the top down. And, and then you can start actually looking at whether you are serving the customer that you claim is your top priority. Yeah, absolutely. As you're reading Team of Rivals, what strikes you as the most relevant lesson or takeaway that they put into practice then, I suppose, beyond the obvious of, you know, surrounding yourself with folks who think differently than you do, and that might even be a rival. What lessons from that do you feel like apply just as powerfully today? Well, I'm, I'm particularly impressed by the story of William Seward, who was considered a lock on the nomination. 
everybody expected he was a career politician. He had a national reputation. He was admired and revered. And, and everyone thought, including him, <laughs> that he was going mm-hmm. to get the nomination for president. And, and <laughs> sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When he didn't, he was he was crushed. Yeah. He was ready to to just give up on politics. And his wife wanted him to. She was sick and tired of him mm-hmm. <laughs> spending his life running around the world and the country trying to save everything. And Lincoln reached out to him and invited him in. And at first he didn't want to go. But ultimately, he decided that and, and his, his closest advisors and friends suggest he said, you still have a role to play. You can make an incredible contribution. You don't have the right to deny the American people and the country the contribution that you can make. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we would take that attitude in all the various aspects of our lives, because so many of our interactions in our families, in our in our jobs, and certainly in politics, we want to win. Mm-hmm. We want to win arguments. We want to score points. We want to come out ahead. And if we take the attitude that when the team wins, every member of the team wins. Yeah. And if I'm particularly talented in one area, then that's the area where I have to make my contribution. Right? Not where I feel the most fulfilled, not the place where I'm going to be in the limelight. Uh, when, when you look at, at many of the most influential people in history, a lot of them were, were little known or unknown because they managed events from behind the scenes. Yeah. And we are so obsessed with the notoriety and the fame. And I want to have my face on the cover of magazines and be interviewed and be invited to parties. What greater pleasure can there be from making a contribution, bringing about success, regardless of who gets the credit. In fact, Harry Truman said, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you're not worried who's going to get the credit. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, you're, have you read Good to Great by Jim Collins? Uh, not yet. It's on my list. Well, that book has come into mind a couple of times while we've been talking, but particularly this, that there's research that backs up that idea that it's the leader that is working behind the scenes that is often more effective than the one that is sort of jockeying for the limelight and is more focused on their own image, um, people knowing who they are and that they are in charge and that sort of thing. He talks about the plow horse and the show horse. Uh-huh. I like that. <laughs> and that it's the plow horse that is really the one that is, you know, they might be behind the scenes. You might not know who they are, but they are doing extraordinary things. And ultimately, they will be remembered for that. Yeah. it's uh, We need to let the get the ego out of the way. Yeah. Somebody pointed out that ego is really an acronym for elbow got out. Oh, uh, okay. I'm right. going to have to write that down. Elbow got out. <laughs> you know? I like it. You know, it's all about me. Yes. Yeah. I want to be the one who gets the glory. I want to be the one who's 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 everybody's talking about. But, you know, what a wonderful thing it is if I can let someone else have the win. You know, Mm -hmm. in in basketball, I think, and in hockey, uh, they keep track of the assists. Mm -hmm. And often the most important guy on the team is the guy who could set up the so-called superstar, mm-hmm. so that he can make the score. Yes. You know, he's the one who gets the cheers. He's the one who gets the MVP. But it's that guy who's setting up the play so someone else can have the victory. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the guy you want on your team. Yeah. And kudos to him that he's willing to play that role 
and not try to be the star himself yeah. because then nobody would win. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and that person is, you know, the, whoever's assisting is a winner as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to close this conversation with just a, a quickie um, because you wrote an intriguing post that's been something that's been on my mind and I'm guessing others, and that's about responding to criticism. Uh, you wrote a really intriguing post last year called 51 Shades of Grey, which side note, is a really brilliant post title. (laughs) And that directly responded to someone who was sharply critical of one of your articles. For those of us who try to put thought-provoking content and ideas out there, whether that's, you know, an entrepreneur producing a podcast or a blog or a book, or someone in the workplace who's really trying to challenge the status quo or just, you know, be creative. In all of those cases, we crave responses, but we dread criticism. (laughs) And that can often, you know, keep us from speaking out, which is totally a different topic. But um, so first, I want to say congratulations on inspiring someone to feel so strongly that they had that kind of response, and they reached out. And second, you know, how did you respond to him? And what advice do you have for us about responding to criticism in a way that is productive and even ethical? Well, there was an underlying truth in the response, in the criticism. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I did was I acknowledged that. I thanked the respondent for the comment. Uh, I acknowledged that, uh, I think it was a woman, she had made a a legitimate point. And then I went into my response on why, in spite of her correct foundation, I felt that the application of that principle uh, did not apply to my post in the way that she claimed it had. Uh, and, and I and I laid out a, a, a defense of why I had spoken the way I, I had, or why I had written the way I had. And we have to be willing always to acknowledge when someone else is right, whether it's a partial truth or a full truth. And sometimes we will overreach. Mm-hmm. I have written things that I have regretted or recanted. And if if we don't, then we're not really pushing ourselves intellectually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we want to always be looking deeper and deeper and, and trying to understand and apply and make connections. And sometimes we're going to, to jump a little bit far. And sometimes we're going to make cases that ultimately we can't defend. And then the thing, the way of integrity, the way of ethics is to, is to then walk it back and say, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who never admits to making a mistake, that's the person you got to worry about. Yeah. yeah. Because human beings make mistakes. That's just part of who we are. Yeah. And if we don't own up to that, then we are not being genuine and we are not being authentic and we're not being ethical. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great, um, great advice and insight and hard won wisdom. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Imagine. So thank you for sharing that with us. And um, so, Janison, where can people learn more about you and your work and your numerous books? Uh, well, most easily on my website, which is my name, Janison Goldson, which is sometimes a little hard to spell. It's also the name of my my business, which is Ethical Imperatives. Okay. Uh, someday I'll get into a mode of using fewer syllables. But um, <laughs> You're talking to somebody who is the introvert entrepreneur for, <laughs> for eight years, so I know about syllables too. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm, on, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. 
Uh, and I'm always always interested in continuing the conversation. Excellent. Well, I will make sure that there are links to all of that on the episode webpage. And I certainly hope that people do get in touch with you. And, and I hope everyone has found great value in this because I know I have. So thank you so much for joining me. And um, we appreciate your, your generous sharing. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. If you want to learn more about Yonason and find links to resources we mentioned in this episode, I invite you to visit the episode webpage at howcanisaythis.com. From there, you can also access past episodes, subscribe, and as I mentioned before, learn how to leave a review or offer feedback. Now for our listener question, submitted online by Jessica. She writes, My supervisor and I meet briefly as needed when I have questions or concerns. She is our director of accounting and is always on the go. My question is, how can I strategically lay out my questions for her to fully understand the issue without dragging it out? These questions are almost always number-related, so the explanation is usually in-depth about what's happening. Jessica's question highlights a challenge, how to meet someone where they're at while also getting what you need out of an interaction. In this case, Jessica wants to be able to speed things up for her boss, while also recognizing that to get what she needs, she needs time and space for more in-depth sharing. I have a few thoughts that I hope will support Jessica in creating an option that works for her, and I hope you hear something in here that is useful for you as well. First, I'm thinking about something that I learned about how to be an effective public speaker. Tell the audience what they want and need to know, not what you want to tell them. And I'll give you a quick example. When I first started giving presentations on introversion, I'd include some backstory on how the term introvert came into being, including talking about Jung, Freud, their friendship and falling out, etc., I probably spent about two minutes on that information, which isn't very long, but over time, I realized that that was two minutes I wasn't telling the audience something practical that they could immediately put to good use. So while it was fascinating information to me, and maybe to a couple of people who were listening, in general, the audience really didn't care. Not only didn't they care, but they might have tuned out during that time, which dampens the energy and kills connection. And that has the potential to have a ripple effect on the rest of the presentation. If I were Jessica, I'd take a look at the information I wanted to share with my boss and put myself in her shoes. I'd ask myself, is this something she really needs to know, or am I including it in the meeting because I think it's cool or important? Now, this is really hard, and I don't mean to sound judgmental or like I'm assuming that Jessica's agenda is just made up of trivial items. Far from it. My point is that we can get very attached to our own content, to the work that we've done, to the information that we have worked so hard to pull together and make sense of. It's worth it to take a step back and ask, does the other person need to know this, or do I just really want to tell them this? You'll probably find that you'll keep some information, but you'll find some that you will definitely be able to trim. There's another consideration. Sometimes we can work so hard to get from point A to point Z, we feel it's important that the person who maybe only cares about point Z knows how we got there. It may very well be true that they do need to know. 
It's just like when we were in school and the math teacher would need to know, like, see our work so that they knew how we solved the problem. Most professional workplaces, we don't necessarily need to show our work, and what is usually at stake is the bottom line. So it's worth it to check in and ask, do they need to know the process and how I arrived at my answer? And if I share it, is it more for my own validation and to prove my competency? Or is it truly because knowing the process is integral to understanding how I got to that result? The answer that you come to might be somewhere in between, but the idea is to at least ask the question and know why you're sharing the information that you're sharing. Other possibilities to fine-tune the meetings that you're having with your supervisor include having a separate meeting that's not focused on a specific report out, just to talk about how the check-in meetings are going. Ask, are they accomplishing what they need to? Is your supervisor receiving information in a way that's useful? Does she want more, less, or the same? And what do you, Jessica, need more, less, or the same of from her? It's a process check. It's a chance to touch base, and it gives you a chance to talk about how things are going. You could also ask her for longer meetings. Even just 15 or 20 minutes might be sufficient, or even 10 minutes. Ask for that once a month so that you have time to be more in-depth with your information. And if you don't already, maybe providing her information in advance of the meeting would help you to dive in faster and cover more ground than if she's seeing it all for the first time when you sit down together. Since you mentioned that you have these meetings as needed, perhaps you could experiment with setting up a regular time on the calendar that feels long enough for you to cover what's needed while honoring that she has a full schedule. If you're always squeezing them in as you go, whenever you can, that can make it feel rushed even before you sit down together. So I know I'm making assumptions here that you're not necessarily able to schedule a regular meeting and that they are squeezed in, but I think that that's a pattern that we can fall into, especially when somebody's busy. And again, it's worth it to back up and challenge that particular model and pattern just to see, is this working and is there a better way to do it? So to summarize a few ideas to consider, take an honest look at what you're sharing and make sure that it's what she needs to hear more than what you want to tell her. Check for information that you can weed out because it's not critical to how you came to your results. Suggest having a process check conversation to see if there's a way that you can each improve the updates. And consider having regularly scheduled meetings so that it doesn't feel quite as squeezed in amongst the thousand other priorities that you both have on your plates. I hope there's something helpful in there for you, Jessica, and for anyone else who has a similar challenge. Thank you again for submitting the question. As for my conversation with Jonasson, one of my favorite takeaways is this reminder that we have two biases. One is a confirmation bias that likes to filter out information that doesn't conform to our beliefs. And in a seemingly contradictory bias, we also have a propensity for latching on to misinformation and trigger words and not seeing and hearing anything else of what someone has said. When I'm in that state, the expression itching for a fight comes to mind. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think it's something we all do, even if we consider ourselves to be thoughtful communicators who really don't want to fight or argue. And we all 
have to sometimes admit that we love just a little bit of self-righteous anger. So our radars are tuned to pick up signals that can trigger us into, well, let me tell you how wrong you are, responses. So your call to action is to notice what topics and even what specific words trigger your self-righteous anger responses. A great place to practice this is, surprise, on social media. If you read a story or a post that immediately inspires a response of, I can't believe that, take a moment to reread the content, every single word of it. For just a moment, put yourself as best you can in the place of the person who wrote it. What could have been driving them? What do they seem to care about the most? What about their position helps you to clarify yours? Just because your fight is itching doesn't mean you have to scratch it. Notice if there's any new information when you slow down, read or listen carefully, and maybe even ask a question or two. Don't jump to the assumption that whatever those trigger words represent for you is the entire story. Take time to consider that maybe, because you're in the mood to open up a can of whoop-ass on somebody, you might be choosing to hear only what you don't want to hear. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you for joining me today, and thank you for joining Yonison as well. And I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. 